1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Late tonight through early Friday morning, the moon will glow reddish-brown in what will be the longest partial lunar eclipse in centuries. We'll learn the best way to view it, and we'll talk about the Mars Perseverance rover's latest discoveries, the just-scheduled launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, and other astronomy-related news. Meantime, the stars have a line for the California School for the Deaf Riverside football team, which is on its way to clinching a league title after enduring seven straight losing seasons and opponents talking smack. We'll learn about their remarkable turnaround. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tonight, cosmic rewards await night owls or very early risers, whichever you prefer, when a long and near total lunar eclipse will be visible from the U.S., turning the full moon a coppery red. For more on that and to take your astronomy related questions, we're joined by Andrew Fracknoy, a retired astronomer, a textbook author and college professor. Andrew Fracknoy, welcome to Forum. Thank you.
2: Nice to be with you.
1: Nice to have you here. So tell us about this eclipse. What makes it particularly special?
2: Well, this is an eclipse of the moon, which means that the full moon suddenly feels the Earth's shadow on it. And as the Earth gets between the sun and the moon, the full moon goes gradually darker and darker and darker. And as you said, eventually gets to be a dark coppery red. Now this is not a total eclipse this time, it's a 97% eclipse. And that means that there'll be a little sliver of light left on the full moon, but not very much. Uh, So this is is a beautiful thing to watch in the sky. And the only problem with it is that it's so late at night and so early in the morning that it will interfere with our sleep and will make us sleepy for the next day of work or school. But if you're willing to make that sacrifice uh, and it's clear in the sky, then you should have a nice uh, cosmic view.
1: Yes, I understand it's supposed to start at about 1120 and then go all the way to 247 a.m. That sounds incredibly long.
2: (laughs) Right. And that's what uh, this is actually the longest, slowest eclipse of this kind that we've seen in in hundreds of years. and The reason is that the moon is not making an exact circle around the Earth. It's Its orbit, like many orbits in the solar system, is kind of an ellipse. And so it's right now at the furthest point of its orbit. And that means it goes a little slower around the Earth than usual. And that means this eclipse stretches out For hours, So I'm recommending for people who don't have that many hours to spend outdoors, uh, the best times would be from about 1230 a.m. to 130 a.m. Then you get to see the maximum of the eclipse. And that does mean staying up late. And also, if it's cold out, make sure you dress warm, uh, bring a thermos of hot chocolate and (laughs) bring someone with whom you like to spend time in the dark. That makes it all the more fun.
1: Well, I understand that the exact color of the glow and its darkness depend on the sootiness of our atmosphere. What makes up sootiness?
2: Ah, sootiness is what we humans put into the air, plus what volcanoes and other natural processes do. And so let's talk about that for a second. Um, The reason that the eclipsed moon doesn't go completely dark is that the Earth is made up of more than just a solid sphere surrounding the earth is a as an atmosphere and that atmosphere acts a little bit like a lens to sunlight so even though the main part of the earth is the solid body that makes the dark shadow the atmosphere around the earth acts a little bit like a lens and it bends different colors different amounts it just turns out that our air is really good at bending red inward and so the reddish colors wind up on the moon from the Earth's atmosphere, uh, refracting or bending sunlight. And that's why we get this coppery color. But also you see this with sunsets, the dirtier the air is, the more the reddish colors are prominent. And so uh, part of what determines the exact color of the eclipsed moon is how badly sooty, how badly dirty the atmosphere of the Earth happens to be that night.
1: We're talking about the near-total lunar eclipse on view late tonight and early tomorrow morning with Andrew Fracknoy, an astronomer and professor with the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute program at SF State, also a retired chair of the astronomy program at Foothill College and author of many textbooks and popular books about astronomy, as well as several works of science fiction. And you can ask Andrew Fracknoy your astronomy-related questions by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email them to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You mentioned uh, a clear night will help us see it. Do you know how things are looking in, in California? Uh,
2: well, I'm happy to say that weather is below my department, so I, I'm <laughs> not really an expert. But, but I, we, yeah. I do hear bad things, that that, that there's a likelihood of of, of cloudiness. and. Um, in that case, I have good news, which is we'll have another one May 15th of next year. So if you're clouded out for this one, don't despair. These lunar eclipses happen relatively frequently, and we'll have another one next May 15th.
1: Would we be able to see some pretty bright constellations, though, given the fact that the moon will be so dark? Or
2: Right. So if it turns out you have clear skies and when the moon goes dark, then that makes the sky easier to see. So in a clear sky, absolutely, you'll be able to see uh, what's in the sky besides the moon, which is the stars and, and planets, uh, they'll, be, they'll be a little bit easier to see. The, the light of the full moon will stop interfering with them.
1: And we don't need any special equipment for this particular eclipse, right?
2: That's right. So this is the lunar eclipse. So the first thing we really ought to tell our listeners is, is that it's perfectly safe to look at. It's the solar eclipse, the eclipse of the sun, where we make all the fuss about protecting your eyes and so on. The moon is always safe to look at. And so eclipsing the moon only makes it safer. (laughs) So there's no need to get out any kind of protective equipment. And also the moon is easily visible in the sky. So you don't need special telescopes or anything to see this eclipse. Uh, Bernie would say this is uh, for the 99% not the 1% who, have, who are rich and have all these fancy uh, pieces of, of astronomical equipment. This is for everybody. Anybody can go outside. If you can see the full moon, you'll be able to see the eclipse.
1: Well, let's turn now to talking about Mars, because I learned recently that uh, Mars Perseverance rover is reporting some pretty interesting activity. I had no idea, actually, that it had a Twitter account. And I was excited to read that it has reported that it has collected a third Martian rock sample to send home to Earth. What can you tell us about that, Andrew?
2: Oh, yeah. So this is this is probably the most exciting space mission that the United States has going right now. We've put a pretty complicated uh, rover, robot rover on the surface of Mars, our neighbor planet, along with a helicopter there's actually a drone helicopter which is able to fly, which is remarkable because the air on Mars is extremely thin. And usually when things fly, they need the buoyancy of the thick air of the Earth's atmosphere to help them fly. So to get around this, engineers at NASA designed a lightweight helicopter with incredibly fast-moving rotors that could, they hoped could take off Uh, in the Martian environment. And it worked. Not only did it work, but it's working so well, they have used it many more times than the original plans called for, and are now using this helicopter as a scout for this robot rover so that it doesn't go into any dangerous territory. So that's part one, that, that there's this helicopter flying, which is amazing to those of us who are Mars fans, either from science or science fiction. But the other part is what you asked about, which is that part of the mission of this uh, robot rover called Perseverance is to drill into the Martian soil, bring up some samples, and with a robot arm, put those samples in a test tube, seal that metal test tube, put it in a rack of such tubes, and then leave it out on the surface of Mars. And the reason for that is that a future mission is then going to land in the same place, pick up that rack of test tubes, bring it to orbit, where another mission will then bring it back to Earth. So, this is part of what we call Mars sample return. It will take decades, but the first few test tubes have now been successfully filled with material from underneath the surface of Mars. And scientists are very excited about the future prospect of bringing a little piece of Mars home to study.
1: And what's the science that these activities are supporting?
2: Well, so this is this is really a, a interesting. I have to give you a slightly long answer to this. So today we know that Mars is inhospitable to life. Its atmosphere is really thin. Its atmosphere is made up of carbon dioxide, the stuff we like to breathe out, not in. Uh, it's extremely cold there. And any water on Mars today uh, is either in vapor form or in ice form because liquid water can't exist under such low pressure conditions. So we don't expect that any life could thrive on Mars today. But all the missions we've sent to Mars have shown us that early Mars, Mars billions of years ago, was very different. It had a thicker atmosphere. It had warmer conditions. Liquid water could not only flow, but there were rivers and lakes, we now know, on early Mars. And there, in that warm, wet environment, life could have begun. And there could have been what NASA scientists are calling a second genesis, a completely independent start to life on Mars, cut off completely from life on Earth. And if that's true, and we could find some evidence of that second genesis, some remains of that early life, that would be one of the most exciting discoveries in the history of science. So that's what we're aiming towards. We're starting to explore Mars now with our rovers. We hope to dig deeper and deeper into Mars where perhaps fossilized life might still be uh, observable. And so, That's the science we're going to. Could Mars have been a second place for life to begin with the idea that if life could begin independently on Mars and on Earth, maybe then it could begin independently on many other planets uh, in the the cosmic neighborhood. Hmm.
1: We're talking about NASA's Mars Exploration Project, also about the near total lunar eclipse on view late tonight and How to Watch It with Andrew Fracknoy. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. If you have questions about tonight's lunar eclipse or about NASA's Mars Perseverance rover or anything else astronomy related, Andrew Fracknoy is here to answer those questions at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Andrew Fracknoy, a retired astronomer and college professor, also the lead author of a free online astronomy textbook. Fracknoy also writes science fiction stories on astronomical themes. And he's here to take your astronomy-related questions as well as we're talking about a special lunar eclipse tonight. And we're talking about NASA's Mars Exploration Project and the technology that has gone to new places that they never even expected. And you, our listeners, are joining us at the number 866-733-6786, the email address, forum at kqed.org, and posting your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Eid from Berkeley is on the line. Eid, join us. Hi, hi, good morning. So I'd like to
0: ask Andrew, Andrew, as a fellow uh, astronomy teacher at Cal and National National University in, in San Jose, say something about Doomsday Asteroid. It's called Abophas, which is the ancient Egyptian name of fear and horror and destruction. supposed to come within a very short distance by, from Earth in 2029 on Friday the 13th. And if it misses then, it is going to come back again, 2036. And it's the same story. And if it misses it again, it is coming 2069. They're going to come so close to Earth; it will be seen by, you know, naked eyes. So we should be careful. All of the calculation is say that it will miss Earth most likely, but not 100% uh, certainty. So Sorry. let's Andrew talk about it. The all thing is, oh, right, so about half All
2: right. So let let me <laughs> let me set the background here. Uh, for our listeners who are not quite so sure what you're talking about. Um, Part of what's interesting about our solar system is that nobody cleaned up after it formed. And so there's a lot of garbage left behind from the early days of the solar system. And that cosmic garbage gets different names. The rocky garbage is called asteroids. The icy garbage is called comets. And although most of them are far away, occasionally some of this cosmic debris actually crosses the Earth's orbit. And if we're there in the same neighborhood when one of these chunks is crossing, it could represent a danger to the Earth. We know, for example, that 65 million years ago, a rather large rock did crash into the Earth and it caused great environmental damages and may have contributed significantly to the dying out of many species in the fossil record. So we are monitoring what what we call these near-Earth asteroids. And the one you mentioned is one that was of particular interest because it seems to come around and come relatively close to the Earth. Now, the latest calculations, as you point out, uh, really rule out any significant chance that Apophis will hit the Earth. Uh, But that's not to say that some other chunk of rock won't. And there are projects on the way at NASA and in other countries to monitor these asteroids and to have advanced warning if one of them is on target for the Earth. Uh, This is a way in which astronomers are contributing to the safety of our planet. If we can find a rock early enough, we already have some plans to send space missions toward that rock to try to deflect it, to try to move it away from the Earth so it doesn't hit us. Uh, The dinosaurs who were wiped out 65 million years ago didn't have a space program, so they couldn't protect themselves. But we're doing better than that. So that's one of the more exciting parts of thinking about astronomy.
1: Well, let me thank you for the question and go to Jeff in Roseville. Hi, Jeff.
0: Hey, good morning. Doctor, thank you for taking time. I uh, had always wondered why we only see this one side of the moon all the time. And a friend of mine many years ago told me it's because that side of the moon has heavier mass deposits in it, which over time, over the millennia, caused the moon to appear to quit spinning and always face the earth because the earth's gravity was pulling on those masses as opposed to the absence of mass on the backside of the moon. I was wondering if you might have any thoughts about that.
2: Sure, so let's again tell our listeners what we're talking about. Um, The moon takes as long to go around itself as it takes to go around the earth. Uh, If you're not quite sure what I mean, you can actually do this experiment uh, with, with two people. One person stands in the middle and is the earth, and another person goes around the earth playing the moon. Turn your shoulders at the same rate that you're going around your friend. And you will find that if you start with your belly button toward your friend, and you turn your shoulders at the same rate, that you walk around your friend, your belly button will always be pointing toward your friend and your friend will only see the front side of your body. And that's what's happening with the moon. We only see one side of the moon. We actually don't need a very complicated explanation for this because this is a cheaper way for things to orbit. And gravity, like your uncle, is known for being cheap. It does the minimum energy things. And going around yourself at the same rate that you orbit is actually slightly cheaper in terms of energy. So many uh, planet moon systems wind up doing that.
1: We're talking astronomy questions and the latest astronomy news with Andrew Fracknoy, an astronomer and professor. And actually, yeah, I wanted to ask you, Professor Fracknoy, about a recent story that we've now learned that the James Webb Space Telescope, the one that's going to replace the Hubble Space Station, that it has a launch date now, that it's December 18th. And uh, I'm wondering what first, can you tell us in terms of the background on this launch, what we should understand about it, because I understand this date was hard to come by.
2: Absolutely. So the Hubble Space Telescope is now pretty old. We just had an emergency with it in the last couple of weeks. Um, And we have been looking forward tremendously to a replacement space telescope for the Hubble. And this is the first telescope to be named after a NASA bureaucrat rather than a scientist. So we're a little bit sorry about that name, but it's the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, it's been delayed by cost overruns and by the complexity of the mission. But what it is, is a much larger telescope in space. The Hubble had to be about as big as could fit into the space shuttle payload bay. That's what launched it. And so we're limited to about a 94 inch mirror uh, on that. And the bigger the mirror, the more light you can gather. So the uh, mirror of the James Webb telescope is going to be 256 inches versus 94 inches. So it will collect a lot more light and show us many more details and a much deeper view of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's also going to be operating not with visible light that your eyes can see, but with infrared light, with light we call heat rays. And you might at first think, well, that's stupid. I wanna see what our eyes can see. But it actually turns out that the universe is clearer to us in some ways in heat rays, and it shows us different things in heat rays. So we expect to learn an enormous amount about the history of the universe, about how common life potential uh, planets are, what we might call habitable planets are in the universe. We're gonna see remote parts of our own galaxy and other galaxies. So astronomers have been drooling over the prospect of such a giant telescope, and it's wonderful that it's actually set for launch. Now, it'll take months after launch before it's all set up and unfolds this giant mirror, and there are many technical challenges along the way. So we'll be holding our breath for much of 2022.
1: Yeah, I heard that its first images would be probably in late 20. 22 And and it being described as having the capacity to look at basically every phase of cosmic history, as well as into the atmospheres of exoplanets. I understand there have been some recent discoveries of new planets, including one that has two suns. You want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. So perhaps the most exciting discovery in astronomy during my lifetime is that we have now confirmed that planets exist around other stars. When I first went into astronomy, we knew about zero planets orbiting other stars, only the planets around our own sun. Today, I just checked, we know almost 5,000 planets orbiting other stars. This has all happened since 1995. Uh, Actually, uh, astronomers from San Francisco State were among the pioneers who, who led to this effort happening. And so now, Uh, We are rich with planets, and of course, the question we ask is, are there planets out there that are like the Earth, that have the same kind of warm, welcoming environment, and could there be KQED listeners on those other worlds? And the answer is, we don't know yet, but we are finding Earth-like planets, we are finding environments like our own. And so the possibility that we might have counterparts, intelligent creatures among the stars, has now increased significantly.
1: And uh, the discovery announced this this week was what exactly? Did you get into that?
2: Oh, so one of the things that uh, we are excited about is where can planets exist? And if people remember the first Star Wars movie, where Luke, the young Luke Skywalker goes out into the evening sky and there are two suns in the sky. And everyone said, oh, George Lucas, what an imaginative idea, but that can't happen in real life. You can't have a stable planet orbiting a binary star, a system of two stars that orbit each other. But now we're discovering that George Lucas was right, that in fact, we can have Tatooine-like planets, And that Tatooine-like planets not only exist, but there seem to be a good number of them out there. And so it is, if you're far enough away from both stars, it's possible to have stable orbits uh, around a double star system.
1: We're talking about planets, the James Webb Telescope, Mars, tonight's lunar eclipse, and you, our listeners, are joining with questions. David asks, if I were on the moon during what is a total lunar eclipse or a Terran eclipse for moon dwellers, and I looked at the earth, what would I be seeing?
2: Yes. So this is a a really great, great idea. Um, What happens if you're on the moon? Okay. So if you're on the moon, then the earth looks dark to you. Um, So this this is really an interesting idea in terms of can we imagine ourselves on other worlds? Can we imagine ourselves in terms of what things will look like? And this is, this is a fun exercise that I think people can carry through uh, to many other environments that we talk about in astronomy. Imagine, just, just think first about when the astronauts went to the moon and they looked back on the earth, what a revelation it was to see uh, this little blue marble as Carl Sagan called it and to see our planet uh, look so small and so fragile in the darkness of space.
1: Well, Marianne asks, is a lunar eclipse observable only in the full moon phase?
2: Yes, because uh, the Earth's shadow falls on the full moon. You need a full moon. And that, I think people know from if they've been looking up at the moon that we're approaching a uh, full moon. Uh, it's been quite spectacular when the skies have been clear all this week. And tonight will be the full moon.
1: And let me go to caller Peter in Florida. Hi, Peter.
0: Hi. This is what I'm thinking. You know know what the real good news is? Your guest, what's your name again, sir?
2: Andrew
0: Andrew Fracknoy. Fracknoy. Oh, that you're not being burned at the stake. Because (laughs) in the year 1600, 400 years ago, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for proposing that those stars out there are other suns, and they have planets like, and there are other Earths with other people. He proposed that, and he was burned at the stake 400 years ago. And thank goodness you're not being burned at the stake. That is uh, an achievement for humanity, I I would say. <laughs> What's I, your question, I,
2: Peter? I, Yeah. I agree with you. Actually, Giordano Bruno was one of my heroes. And when I'm in Rome, I always visit his statue, because you're right, he was one of the early proponents of life on other worlds. And uh, he was thought to be violating church scripture and was indeed burned. Uh, Mina, if I can say just one thing, uh, some of the listeners may be thinking, well, if I can't see the eclipse in the Bay Area, what about my relatives in the East Coast or elsewhere? And so I wanted to mention that uh, on my website, which is fracnoy.com, if people go to the blog part of that website, I've put a whole table of where the eclipse is visible and in all the different time zones. I'm sorry, when the eclipse is visible in different time zones. So if you want to know uh, which time which time it is in different parts of the country, just go to fraknoi, F-R-A-K-N-O-I.com. And on that website, the blog part has all the information about the eclipse. And well, by the uh-huh. way, also my science fiction stories that you were so kind to mention.
1: Well, this sister wants to know if light pollution will affect someone's ability to see the lunar eclipse.
2: Yes, light pollution is a big problem. That's the fact that we ourselves are producing so much light, it makes it harder to see the sky. And the further away you are from city lights, the easier all things in the sky turn out to be. But the nice thing about an eclipse of the moon is that it involves a full moon. And the full moon is so bright, it knocks your socks off scientifically speaking. And so, in fact, it's perfectly okay to watch even in places where there's a lot of light pollution.
1: Before you leave us, Professor Barton, I want to ask you about this report that came out, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. They just made this bold ask of the governor in my, uh, I'm sorry, of the government, in what I understand is a report that only comes out every 10 years or so where they propose Sort of bold new ideas, new investments. Um, and one of the things that they proposed was a program, a multi billion dollar program called the United States Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> Can you explain what that is?
2: Right. So, this is every 10 years, we astronomers get organized and do a report on what our priorities are. Because astronomy, uh, particularly in this country, but around the world, is, is funded by governments. It's our total uh, contribution to our taxes. And a tiny part of that goes toward this fascinating thing of exploring the universe. And so the government always wants to know what we think is the most important thing to build. Because we always have 10 projects that are so exciting. So we put priorities uh, to our projects every 10 years. And this project, priority list has just come out. And the thing we really want is a bigger telescope, even on Earth. It's possible now to build gargantuan telescopes on Earth, uh, telescopes which are 30 meters, 30 yards across in terms of the mirror. And again, the bigger the mirror, the fainter the light you can see, the further out in space you can see, the further back in time you can see. And so uh, we have these proposals to build these monster telescopes. They're very expensive, and we would really appreciate it if the government could contribute more significantly to the building of these and other instruments that will help us explore questions like life out there and what was the history of the universe and what happened right around the Big Bang and where did the elements in our bodies come from.
1: Is this program connected in any way to the James Webb Space Telescope Operation?
2: Well, this is again, this is not a particular program, but it's a it's a kind of wish list
1: Ah, that the
2: National Academy helps us put together to present to the government and to say, these are the priorities of the expert scientists. If you want to know what we'd like you to spend government money on, here's our list. Here's our shopping list. It's like the Christmas list you put together. Now, you may not get everything on your list, but at least you try to put it in order.
1: Well, Mark and Mountain View, let me see if I can squeeze you in. It looks like you have a quick question for Professor Fracknoy.
0: Yes, thank you. Professor
2: Fracknoy, I wanted to know about the Silicon Valley astronomy lectures, which are wonderful, and it's not the same online. When, after the pandemic, are you going to resume those? Thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you to mention. So at Foothill College, we run something called the Silicon Valley astronomy lectures. You can find them on YouTube, where we bring noted astronomers in, to talk about great discoveries in astronomy. It's still going on uh, even despite the pandemic, we're just doing it on YouTube. And no one knows yet exactly when Foothill College will be open to the public in a way where we can have five to nine hundred people in a in an auditorium. So stay tuned, but you can see them on YouTube if you just go to Silicon Valley Astronomy Lecture.
1: Andrew Fracknoy, astronomer and professor with the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Thanks so much for teaching us so much today.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I hope everyone has clear skies tonight.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to Forum. Stay with us for another segment after the break. I'm Nina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,